So, Chris, the other day I listened to This American Life, uh, and this was, I, I looked it up, it's episode 617. And the title of the episode is Fermi's Paradox. And um, the episode begins, you know, it's the traditional three act This American Life episode, but it begins with, um, with David Kestenbaum talking about how distressing Fermi's paradoxes for him. And then the show continues with everybody telling him, don't worry about it. It's not distressing. And I think David was absolutely correct to say that Fermi's paradox is, I mean, seriously terrifying uh, and, and depressing. Like when you think about it, um, yeah, are you kind of on the same page with me there? So I think it's definitely distressing. Um, I would I would be interested to see why you say that it's terrifying because <laughs> I I have a guess at that, um, but it may be a little bit different from uh, from why I think it's a distressing thing. Okay, so let's define Fermi's paradox really quick. Sure, um, and I feel like most of our listeners are probably going to already know it, but Fermi's paradox is is the question of where is all the life in the universe? Um, so the paradox is if life is likely enough that it's formed at least once, right? And we're talking about intelligent life specifically. Um, if it's likely enough that it's happened at least once, then why don't we see it all over the universe? Because, um, if it has any sort of likelihood and we roll the dice as many times as we have in the universe, there are so many habitable planets. How can these two things exist where intelligent life exists and plenty of opportunities for it exist, but we don't see it? Yeah. And, and when we're talking about likelihood, it's important to invoke the Drake equation, which is yes. usually the one that I'm using when you talk about the likelihood that somebody is out there. Um, the Drake equation takes into account, you know, star formation and how many planets we have per star and um, the, the number of planets that could potentially support life and the fraction that actually develop life and then the fraction that are that where life becomes intelligent and then the fraction of those where they've developed communications. Each of those fractions then being an important thing for us to theorize about. But the basis of the Drake equation is things that we can actually measure now, like how many planets there are mm -hmm. per star and how many planets, you know, per star can actually support life. And so when we have kind of these exoplanet, you know, um, discoveries and it's like, well, you know, scientists have, you know, revised the number of planets to st per star to be, and I don't remember what the current number is. This, this probably would have been a good one to have at hand, but it's something like, you know, uh, um, an average of like three planets per star in the galaxy. Um, and, and I think that might be high, but it's, it's actually, it's getting higher all the time. And so that number is going up. And because that number is going up, the likelihood that a civilization should be contacting us is also going up with those numbers. So the, the current calculations um, suggest, right? Cause this is all, all total uh, estimations based on, you know, basically one, uh, one data point. But right now, the Drake equation comes out to about a hundred um, civilizations. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, the the uncertainty is a factor of a hundred. 
Um, but we're looking at something like 156 million it, it, civilizations in the Milky Way alone. Right. And so then Fermi's paradox is, you know, very nicely uh, summarized as where is everybody? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the the fault has to lie somewhere. I mean, there, there are probably multiple sources of fault, but um, I, I think it is in the Drake equation, if I'm honest. Um, by the way, did you recite the Drake equation from memory or were you looking at, uh, I'm totally looking at Wikipedia right now. So, the, okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was going to be very impressed. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing is I internalize a lot of the Drake equation. So I have these kind of ideas of this mm-hmm. term and that term and why this term might be too high and why that term might be too low and other terms that are missing, which is one of the things I want to talk about with you. Um, but yeah, I, I totally had to look those up. And, and okay. the, uh, the Wikipedia article on Fermi paradox, um, and the one on Drake equation, they summarize them, you know, quite nicely. Um, and I, I gotta say, I, I feel, um, very kindly towards the Fermi paradox because, um, I used to live in Chicago. Um, not too far from Fermilab, the, the particle accelerator, the largest particle accelerator in North America, um, where we discovered lots of very important things, but also where, uh, it's named after the same, uh, you know, Enrico Fermi, it's the same guy. Indeed. Yeah. There, I mean, it, I, as a uh, physics nerd, um, run across Fermi's name a lot in uh, kind of what I consider a very crucial time in uh, the physics community. Mm. So it's uh, it's good stuff as well. Um, so let's let's talk about distressing though. Why? So I understand distressing um, <laughs> because there's that fundamental difference between what we think the answer should be, mm-hmm. and then when we look at this very obvious answer of you know, if this answer is right, we should be just like bathed in communication from other civilizations right now. And we're not. So that's distressing. But why terrifying or depressing? So I think depressing is easier. I mean, they're, they're both very closely tied to each other. So I think it all comes down to the what ifs. Like, what if we are alone? Uh, what if we reach out into our galaxy and we not only don't find evidence of, you know, civilizations that have destroyed themselves, but what if we don't find any other civilizations at all? Um, and it gives me this, this horrible sense of agoraphobia. Yeah, I can I can understand that. I'm I'm picturing kind of the earthly equivalent of this um, for for those who are interested in post apocalyptic or or kind of zombie um, movies. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine your main character walks into the area that should be New York and finds it completely flattened. So Manhattan Island is just yeah. you know glass. That's distressing. That's absolutely it's it's terrifying because it makes you ask. It's like what happened here to make this not be what I expect it to be. And the other one that you mentioned is also, what if you, you know, I I love time travel films. So what if you walk and you, you know, you're on Manhattan Island and it's, you know, forested. 
So no one's ever been here in the way that I expect there should have been people here. And so there's that, I think maybe that is that sense that you're talking about that kind of. Well, and that, that's a very, that's a very valid uh, kind of uh, existential terror, kind of the um, uh, planet of the apes um, statue of Liberty moment. Um, But that's a feeling of loss. I think the, the feeling of never having had the thing that you thought you did, you know, always looking forward to this galactic community that we, you know, it's, it's almost an afterlife to us. Um, you know, where we're like, one day we'll get to join the culture. One day we'll get to, uh, you know, learn basic, uh, yeah, you we'll know. be visited by the Vulcans and they'll, they'll tell well, yeah, us all the obvious things that we were getting wrong. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll join the Federation and, and, uh, make Starfleet strong and and have all of these conflicts that we you know imagine in all of our science fiction we you know we have conflicts with other species and what like what if that community just simply doesn't exist and what if we go out there and there's literally nothing more to learn about biological life because we're it you know like <laughs> that's yeah. horrifying to me yeah so um that does that that feels uh definitely uh depressing um and then that that also keys into um the the loss uh the you know the the loss aversion that works so well in horror films which is okay well if that's true we are teetering on the edge of losing the only civilization that ever existed um and like even if we get to the point where we're a multi-planet species and and we're good, we're safe. Like it'll feel so squeamish to look back and think we almost destroyed ourselves. Um, like oh god, that just that makes me feel. It makes my skin crawl just thinking about it. Yeah, and and I get a similar feeling when um, uh, reading histories of uh, World War One and World War Two, yeah. because yeah. in both of those cases, not necessarily the the kind of the big moments of like, well, we could have destroyed the world and 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 you know killed off everybody, but those were big turning points in what we think of now as civilization, as you know what in. The, during the Cold War, we would have called free civilization, where, mm. you know, there, there's just a ton that we take for granted <clears throat> as being true right now, including just the general relative peacefulness of the, the era that we're in, that could have been a, just completely false. You know, the the way we live right now, it would have been, you know, it, it could have been uh, entirely fascist. Don't get me started down that road. <laughs> it's, you know, we could have been um, entirely under, a, you know, say a Soviet style system uh, with that strong disconnect, what we would consider a dystopian world. Um, and uh, just to, to, to think that there's no outside force to correct us again. There's there's no Vulcans to come in and say, yeah, you, this, this is not a good idea. We might be making that same error in some way that we're just not, we don't know because it's the only way we've lived. Yeah. Um, I recently read 1984, uh, for the first time. 
And yeah, that, I mean, it, it really is a, a, it's a, it's a horror book, you know, I mean, it is sci-fi and it is speculative fiction, but like the idea that the entire world is, is three different world powers and they are all controlling their, their citizens and, you know, in the same way and telling the same lies to their citizens. And they've just kind of reached this impasse where, you know, it's three, you know, it's this tripod of three, no more, no less ever, um, no reaching the stars. And they actually talk about, uh, space travel in, in 1980, in 1984. I keep on a call it oh, 1983. I'd, I'd forgotten that. Yeah. For, for just a little bit, they talk about, um, how the party, both says that the stars are real and that they are put in place by big brother. They're, you know, near at hand and are just an illusion. And they're also huge and we should study them, you know? (laughs) And I think that's really important because science is one of the first things that gets destroyed, you know, when we let that kind of thing happen. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because science is a dangerous thing to a power, a power that is trying to, uh, control the worldview of another person so all right so before we go way down the road of of that depressing (laughs) i i think what this is talking to is there's a a term in the drake equation which is the last term of his which is the length of time over which civilizations release detectable signals and there's just so much that that uh, we can unpack there. Um, the the first go to place there is is what we were just talking about. Is that you have a civilization, civilizations form. The, you know, life is common. Um, you know, uh, complex life happens, intelligent life happens, and then they're just around for a very short period of time. That's also a terrifying idea because if you look around you and see that civilizations' lifetimes are very short it means ours probably is too. Yeah. So you start asking, well, why is it that our our civilization's lifetimes would be short? And then we look around and we say, well, we can kind of see the seeds of that right now. We can see a dozen different ways that we could destroy ourselves. And and so then we go down the depressing road. But the, I, I, I also like to take a look at those other parts of, of that term. So first of all, um, you know, the length of time over which they release signals. Um, that one's a really fascinating one to me because there's another version of it where you have a happy but insular civilization. Uh, so they've figured it out. Um, they're, you know, on the road to, uh, to self-awareness and taking care of people, but they just see absolutely no need to uh to communicate out or perhaps for some reason they've actually decided not to communicate outward the the other you know variety on that and we can talk about all of these the other variety on that is that they're releasing signals and we're just i mean frankly too dumb to to, to detect them yet because you know everybody you know obviously well, and i think that's really really important that not only I want to hear why you think that we might be too dumb to detect them. But also, we have to keep in mind that signals don't travel very far. Um, our radio noise, people think about, you know, television as, you know, it's been around for, you know, broadcast television, radio has been around for almost 100 years. So that means that if you go 100 light years out, 
we're broadcasting this beacon of, Hey, we're here. Um, and you know, if you go far enough out, you can listen to, you know, early, um, early radio communications and, and how cool is it to travel back in time? And that's absolutely not true. Our radio signals only reach, um, I think it's five to 10 light years out. Um, I think around four or five light years, they stop becoming coherent where the, the data is totally scrambled, um, which is really interesting because Alpha Centauri, which we know has, or, uh, uh, Pro, um, Proxima Centauri has got, uh, planets around it, um, maybe in the Goldilocks zone, maybe. Um, so there's a, a very good possibility that we could have an eight year round trip commu- communication with that civilization if there happens to be one there. But, uh, just outside of that, that radius, the radio signals don't make sense. They, they just cannot contain data over that long of a distance. And then beyond that, they fade out into the background radiation and are completely undetectable. So for us, um, our, our L term, the length of time term is crippled. There, there's an extra baby term attached onto there that defines the radius that we can actually communicate. Um, and presumably that's in place yeah, for that's... every other civilization until they go, Hey, we need to start sending pinpoint signals at super high strengths towards specific planets because presumably you can't broadcast that kind of stuff. You have to be very selective. So that could be crippling the L term. But why do you think that we might be too stupid to see these things? Yeah. And, and I think that that actually leads right into it is so that, um, we have these signals that we think of. And so when, when these equations were being developed, we're, we were in the middle of the radio age. Radio waves, and we still are, radio waves were the way to communicate, and especially these kind of analog, very analog and direct um, sort of radio communication waves. Yeah, AM and FM. And so it seems, <laughs> yeah, so exactly. Basic. And it seemed perfectly natural that if, if you had a civilization and then they were going to communicate with another civilization, they would communicate by some kind of radio. And I'll even broaden that to be, you know, electromagnetic radiation that is modulated in a way to carry information. However, that's that it's extremely parochial as a view. We're taking that view that because that's how we're communicating right this moment. Yeah. I mean, and like you said, this it's over like a one century, which is just a blink. That some that even ourselves uh, a millennium from now or 10,000 years from now would consider doing the exact same thing. But like you said, those signals have their own problems. They travel at the speed of light, which, you know, over these distances isn't particularly uh, useful. Um, they attenuate really quickly, the, the inverse square law, and um, they take an enormous amount of power to do right. And so it, it's like we're not imagining that 100 years from now, 200 years from now, we will solve those problems by switching to some other form of communication that makes absolutely perfect sense the way that radio does now for us, but that we're not even considering yet. And that, you know, the likelihood, and, and this is where I would love to add another term to this equation, the likelihood that any two uh, civilizations mm. are using the same communication method and so I have a counterexample of that, but I'll I'll just finish the the thought. So you know, it may be that all of the civilizations in our neighborhood 
are happily communicating with each other by, you know, brain zerbal. <laughs> and brain zerbaling is super obvious once you think about it because it, it just hooks directly into the, you know, the inverse null field. And you just, you know, zamble the null field and you send a brain zerbal and everybody's out there. And so, you know, they're all they're all communicating. It's all near instantaneous. It doesn't attenuate. Um, it's, you know, super fast communications. They all play their video games together and they're happy. And they kind of look over and they're like, well, you know, what about the folks who are still, you know, communicating by uh, electromagnetic emissions? And it's like, well, they'll get to brain zerbling eventually. So why do we bother with that? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like the, the example that I think of is um, you, you go back 100 years or and uh, there's uh, an island in the South Pacific that's, you know, still relatively uh, isolated, which maybe more than a hundred years, but so this isolated island is asking the same question. They're doing the Fermi paradox. They're talking about their version of the Drake equation and they're wondering where all the, um, the signals are from the islands around them. Um, and you know, there's gotta be somebody out there and we know looking back that there is, but what they're doing is they're basically thinking about it in terms of their communication mode. Well, when they're communication, communica- communicating across their island, they're doing so by, you know, um, you know, torches and visible light. And they're going to basically, you know, flash a visible light off and on. And they're looking around and nobody's doing that. And so they sit down and they say, where is everybody? Well, where is everybody is, you know, on steamships and, um, transmitting their first radio signals and you know communicating that way in a way that just hasn't even occurred to that that group yet um and those people who are busily you know communicating by radio waves aren't thinking it's like well actually you know there's this group over here that that can't hear this so we should probably also produce you know, light signals for them and make a really bright light signal so it'll get across and we'll we'll create a giant tower to broadcast these light signals so this particular communication, you know, medium can be heard. They're busy with other things. They're not they're not considering that. So I think that's one possibility. Yeah. But the the reverse of that is um the idea that uh we do have the ability to simulate those other things. And so what sometimes comes up is the idea, well, it's like, okay, radio signals are still there. Um, even if you're, you've figured out the, I don't remember what I called it, inverse null field. I have to be consistent with my uh, techno babble. Uh, otherwise, my script will get corrected. <laughs> um, you know, we still have to, you know, produce this if we want to go, you know, talk to the these, these early folk. Um, and that that question becomes there it's like there's there's another term that another mini term we're just adding them by the handful which is the percentage of those civilizations that are communicating by other means that also figure out how to translate that into something that we can understand um so there's you know it's not so much that brain zerbling oh, i'm losing it now um is is you know that's common but they can also produce say a force hologram 
at an arbitrary point in space. And so a force hologram at an arbitrary point in space could then be used to communicate with, you know, these uh, squishy water people on, uh, on this blue planet over here. Um, I can imagine that in the same way that Star Trek has the kind of, oh, you know, this planet is communicating in, in a strange way. We will, you know, apply our computer power to, uh, to simulate that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, brain zerbling sounds, uh, super futuristic. There's actually a method that we're just beginning to poke our heads into. And I think this is, um, really a, a good way to validate um, the possibility of brain zerbling. Uh, and honestly, it's gravity. Um, we're just beginning to set up our first gravitational telescopes. Um, and it's something that really excites me because gravity uh, is not particularly good for communicating with others, as far as we know, but it is fantastic for observing uh, distant events because gravity is not subject to the inverse square law. It's a direct inverse, um, sort of, of uh, drop off. So, uh, you, you don't have to worry about, you know, the square of the distance. You just worry about the, the distance itself. Yeah. I like to think of, uh, gravitational waves as kind of the subwoofer yeah. of, uh, of wave propagation yeah. where it's, it's really hard to get you know, a strong signal out of it, but it, it travels so far and so well mm -hmm. that you can get a deep signal out of it. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, there's LIGO and LISA, and I think those are the only two gravity telescopes. So, so LIGO's out in the middle of the desert and they're actually actively observing, uh, gravitational waves. Um, and like observed one in the half hour test that they, like the first time they turned it on, they're like, oh, we'll just turn it on for a half hour, then we'll turn it off. They turned it on and immediately saw um, two black holes orbiting each other, which is so cool. And then LISA is being built by ESA, the European Space Agency, and it's actually going to be a space-based gravity telescope, which is really cool because you can point it in any direction you want. Um, so so LISA observes in a, in a ring, um, so you can actually sweep... Uh, the entire sky just by rotating along one axis, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, so my instinct is to never go the next step and say, okay, well, all we can do is communicate by electromagnetism. And then we invent, uh, you know, gravity telescopes. And I go, okay, well, all we can do is uh, observe with gravity telescopes and maybe um, some civilization can actually produce gravity waves and maybe we'll see that or, you know, maybe they've got some sort of network set up. Um, and, and it's really hard for me to make that next step into, you know, whatever's beyond gravity, what brain zerbling, whatever the next big thing is, or, you know, maybe 10 big things down the road. But um one one of the side effects of that, and, and we've seen this with uh, with our own technology, is that um, when you develop those new ways of communicating, you might just utterly forget the old way of communicating. It doesn't occur to you. It's not useful anymore. You lose the technology for it. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't know how to do a torch signal or um, uh, produce a smoke signal. And so... You know, I don't know Morse code. I know a little bit, 
but not enough to actually communicate out over a, a, a telegraph or a wireless telegraph. And so um, we, we have this with uh, things like cell phone technology. Uh, there was a, a show that I, I loved uh, a little while back where, you know, guys going back in time you know, uncontrollably. And the first thing that he learns is that his phone doesn't work. Uh, even though he's going back to a time where there is a cell phone network, his own phone just can't talk to it because it's it's completely on the wrong frequencies and using the wrong uh, protocols. And so he kind of starts, you know, building up this uh, retinue of, of phones so that no, wonder, no matter what he, uh, he ends up, what time he ends up, he can still communicate. And we're doing that. We're developing all of these uh, ways of of, uh, of communicating as well as just ways of interacting, ways of doing technology at all um, that are fundamentally difficult or different because of the difficulties that we get past. And so, again, I think it, it, it makes sense that you would have a civilization that over the course of, you know, a few thousand years could take up and then discard a dozen different, fundamentally different ways of communicating. And over that time period, yes, they've been communicating that whole time. But, I mean, essentially they're fragmented into a dozen different, you know, potential ways of, of actually detecting them. So, so is that actually true? Because it seems to me that we've got, we've only hit our second fundamental communication type. The first one was... Well, maybe we're hitting a third, but the first one is, you know, sight and sound, um, the, the things that you can do with no additional instruments. Um, and then you have electromagnetic, either propagated down wires or propagated through the actual electromagnetic field, um, like radio, um, and, and radio includes UHF and, you know, all, all of these different, uh, areas along the spectrum. And then maybe we're getting into a third with laser communication, but that's still a type of electromagnetic communication. Yeah, and and so the the fundamental physics of it um it it feels the same, but when you actually talk about the the radio signals themselves and the kind of information that they're conveying, we moved from an an analog kind of modulating the signal to um, a packet-based uh, digital signal. Um, and now we're actually, uh, because we're concerned with ways of cramming as much information into those signals as possible, we actually um, will encode and compress and then you know further packetize and then you know chew up that signal to the point where from the from somebody's uh, point of view of say, uh, a 1940s uh, radio receiver, that signal might seem like noise. I don't actually know enough about radio signals these days to know whether it would honestly look like noise or whether it would look like, you know, kind of communication I can't understand yet. And that, that actually makes a difference in terms of detecting other civilizations is detecting a signal you don't know. Yeah, like you can, you can understand that a modem is a thing. Like if you listen to a modem, you can right. tell that there's data being passed back and forth. Yes, even, even if you can't um, understand it. Eventually, so I mean, a modem is a really interesting idea because if you if you listen to the beginning of a modem signal, you can tell that there's data being passed back and forth. But if you ever listen yeah, to I the middle of a signal, it it sounds really noisy. 
because of the way that uh, it all of that negotiation has already happened. Right, and the and so the handshake has to be very uh, exploratory and explicit and basic, so that you can see exactly what your line looks like. And then once you've decided mm-hmm. your baud rate, and you know you've decided the uh, the range of frequencies you're going to use, then it can go a little bit more chaotic. And yeah, then it does sound right. very much like static. I guess that's I guess that's true. Yeah. Which then brings me to one of the other kind of you know many terms in the Drake equation, which is how much have we actually been listening? Um, this is the SETI Institute's point, which is that we're like, oh, we should be able to hear these signals. It's like we're not actually really listening to the sky. We're occasionally like pinpointing an area here, an area there to do this kind of deep listening over a long period of time, where a long period of time is like a day, which is nothing. Um, But in general, if we had signals coming in from, you know, all across the sky, a lot of them we just, we wouldn't hear because we're not listening. Um, We get occasionally like a tantalizing uh, signal that turns out to be something else, but it would be interesting to hear that kind of, you know, bloop at the beginning of somebody's, um, uh, you know, equivalent of a modem signal. And we hear the bloop and we're like, oh, that bloop's very interesting. Let's listen to that. It's like, oh, well, we're not hearing anything else. Well, that's because they just negotiated the frequency and mm. just skipped off to something else. Hmm. But who knows? Hmm. Yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> now... There is another mini term that I would like to talk about, and this this kind of opens up another can of worms, but I think it's a can of worms we're ready for, which is the assumption that civilizations want to communicate once they get past a certain level of of complexity. And uh, a a friend of mine uh, actually presented this in in, uh, a you know, kind of a more compact way is it's the percentage of civilizations who actually care mm-hmm. at all. Um, and I can think of two major reasons why a civilization wouldn't care. One is that they don't have a mental model that includes anything outside of their location. Let's call it a planet. Um, so you can imagine, say, an entirely water planet develops coral, develops, you know, complex life, develops, you know, space whales. The space whales see kind of the edge of their existence being the the edge of the, the the water and don't ever get to the point where they think outside of that. They have a nice, fully complex, entirely civilized um, internal world. And they just never care about the world outside. Um, that's tough because it gets into kind of alien psychology and I'm terrible at that. The other one that I'm more interested in is uh, and we can identify with more is the um, uh, going outside when you have a perfectly good video game right here. And so I can either go out to the garden and garden, or I can go into Minecraft and garden. And so if I'm in Minecraft and gardening, nobody else sees that garden. Nobody's going to walk past and say, that's Chris's lovely garden because it's being simulated. Um, if we progress to the point where I could just implant a chip in my head, where I can play Minecraft in my head, and then I've got a simulation of my garden and I can go out and garden all day, well, great. I'm perfectly happy. Maybe. There, there are side effects, but I'm perfectly happy. We can imagine that. And 
nobody else will ever see my garden. And so how likely is it that a civilization develops to the point where they basically just say, look, we could either go struggle against the universe or we could simulate a universe right here and we're done. We, we've meet all of our kind of happiness criteria. Uh, we've created an accurate enough simula uh, simulation so that it's as complex as it needs to be, um, which reminds me of the Next Generation episode where they make Moriarty happy mm. and not likely to destroy the Enterprise mm -hmm. by basically simulating him a universe to explore. Yeah, which is a really, really good episode. Oh, yes. Like, of the, uh, of the holodeck episodes, it's really good. So the the two examples that you just gave, uh, space whales that are um, limited by some physical structure on their world and therefore never, you know, observe the stars themselves and then are never curious about the stars and, um, you know, perfect video game worlds, um, there are two big issues and that's power. Um, and that's something that is physical, not psychological. So there may be whales that are perfectly happy within their own, uh, you know, within their own, uh, hydrosphere. That's the word I was looking for. Um, but it's very likely that as their technology progresses, uh, and I mean, super, super likely, especially if they're playing video games, that as their, um, as their civilization progresses, that they have increasing power consumption requirements. Um, and so I, I think that in both of those instances, there, there is a, um, a chance that a, a civilization could do that and stay totally insular. But I think it's much more likely that they're going to need to collect more and more power. And that necessitates eventually <laughs> on the extreme, it nece necessitates a superstructure. Um, as far as we know, like there may be other power generation, uh, techniques. Maybe you can, um, dip a water wheel down into the inverse null field. And if you catch the right current, you can have your water wheel spin forever and you've got, you know, perfect power generation. Um, that's just based off of a fundamental aspect of the universe and you don't need to worry about it. But, um, I mean, in a, in a world where, and I'm talking about our current reality in a, in a world where we know about a potential super, it's not a superstructure. Uh, what's it called? Um, Megan's star. Yeah. The, uh, the star that's producing the, uh, complex, um, uh, pattern of, uh, of what do you call it? Occlusion. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, um, Tabby's star. Sorry. Tabby's star. Um, there named go. after Tabitha, uh, Boyahin. I forget how her name is pronounced. Um, so yeah, so Tabby Star, it, it's not a superstructure. It's comets. Like we've seen periodicity that looks exactly like comets. But well, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ish. ish. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you the ish. It's not a superstructure though. Um, and if it's a superstructure, then it's a disguised superstructure, which is kind of interesting because if you have to build a superstructure and you don't want people to know that you've got a perfect video game world, I mean, looking like comets is not a bad way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um, but I mean, it's, I think it's really fascinating that we don't see, uh, Dyson swarms, uh, fairly often. 
Um, I, I'm, I, I wish we did. I really wish that we looked out and there was, you know, this blatant evidence of other, you know, mega civilizations. Yeah. And, and I think that there's, there's this, an interesting connection between that idea and what we were just talking about with the radio signals idea, mm. which is that we come up with an idea of, of this kind of, you know, how a civilization might advance to the, the most technological um, stage. And like you said, it's, it's based on power because we're based on power. Now we're, we're talking about how to, you know, get enough energy in order to do these things that we want to do. So we imagine that any other civilization would need to do the same. And so we then, we kind of get the idea and we're like, oh, let's look out into the world, to, to, into the universe to see if we see that. Uh, no, we don't see that. Which it, it could mean they're not out there. It also, again, could mean that they're just continue to be different from mm -hmm. what we can imagine them to be. Yeah. And the nice thing about that is, is I think that these terms that we're talking about, these many terms, the the space whale world where they're super happy, the uh, the world where you know everybody's insular and and that's why they want to look like comets, that then gets interesting. At least it's something for us to go out there and kind of meet the whale world, meet the you know the um, pseudodoxin sphere that's that's been disguised. Um, it gives us a reason to to look rather than to just listen. Um, uh, the difference that I, I see there is if you've got a civilization somewhere and they're going to be producing side effect signals that are not specifically designed to communicate with us, then it's it's going to be a lot harder to detect. We have to do a lot more detailed searching. But ultimately, the things that we find there might be more fruitful if they're not just kind of placed on our doorstep in a, in a nice handy package. It also means that we're probably not going to expect that to be a welcome mat. It's not going to be them saying it's like, here's the, you know, six fundamental things that you need to know about the universe that you only know two of them so far. And so, you know, congratulations. But at the same time, I think it just like what we're finding with the exoplanet search, where we're looking out there and we're expecting a certain kind of exoplanet, and then what we're finding is, huh, that's odd. That's science. That's like the best part of science. It's yeah. like we had no idea. Yeah, it's true. So, uh, yeah. So that's the thing about the Fermi paradox is that I feel like if you're gonna talk about it properly, you have to talk about it on so many different levels and with so many different interpretations. And I feel like most of the conversations I hear about it are so one dimensional. They pick one, yes. one, uh, psychological or, uh, one philosophical direction and never tack into the wind. Like they just go in one direction and, and act like that's all that there is to, and I guess, you know, on on one level, it's the question. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I would agree with that. Absolutely. Um, I think it's 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 definitely a worthy question, yeah. too. It's not idle, idle speculation, because it means that it, it's it's something fundamental about the entire universe that we place ourselves in. Um, and it also means that, like you said, if if we're it, then we have a really big responsibility because we're it. This is it for life. And if you 
believe that life and intelligence and the extensions of intelligence into civilization are important and are generally a good, then we can't we can't let that flame go out. And and because we're it, we can't say, oh well somebody else will carry that torch for us. There is no one else that we know of. Now can I tell you my uh my most fun like doomsday scenario? Oh, the boy. one that I love. Okay. Alright. So um let's talk about time travel for a minute. So let's say that there's a term in this equation for um, <laughs> the fraction of civilizations that becomes, civ- <laughs> you know, sufficiently, you know where this yeah, is going, going. <laughs> sufficiently advanced to develop time travel. Oh, boy. And let's say that there's a very, very high fraction of those civilizations that manage to destroy themselves using time travel. So, oh, what is that that principle now? It's the principle of like self consistency, and it has somebody's name, and it's a Russian a Russian name. We'll put it in the show notes. But um, the idea of this principle, and it's actually been proven out in actual experience experiments of of real physics, where if you set up a condition where the only thing that condition can do is create a paradox that ripples back in time, then that condition, in order to uh, enforce self-consistency, will never be possible to exist. And and it, it that, that feels very philosophical, but this is a real thing that happens, which is that the future can come back and interfere with the present or the past in order to prevent a circumstance that would cause the future to come back and interfere with the past. And and I love that there's an actual experiment that, that shows this, and there's a, there's a whole slew of them now. It's been uh, a pretty uh, a varied field over the, ne- uh, the last decade or decade and a half. But what that shows us about our universe is that the universe can actually snip right out of the fabric of time anything that's going to be too bothersome and so if you if you can take as a as an idea that a sufficiently advanced civilization can use one of the many ways that we know of now to to travel back in time and 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 affect the uh, the events boy of the past. that was so casual that sentence. <laughs> oh, that might be a whole other discussion. But um, yeah, I'm putting it on the list right now. Hang on. Here we go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's you know, general relativity opens this up. You've got cosmic strings, and you move them past each other at at you know relativistic speeds. And so um, there's also the quantum level where we can actually uh, influence uh, uh, past events because of anyway. Um. And which is what made these experiments possible, is that at a quantum level, they could actually um, produce an effect that actually um, um, interacts with the choices of the past, so that if the choice of the past was made in a certain way, then it would prevent itself from happening, that kind of thing. Um, I, I'll have to find some of these papers just to, to, to prove that I'm not making it up. But the general idea is that if you can say a civilization can get advanced in order to start affecting its own past and that in a high you know percentage of these uh, cases 
that civilization can't be counted on to not just utterly erase itself from existence. And because of the way that quantum mechanics works, it would have to erase itself from existence all the way to its past. Because it has to erase all possible, you know, paths that lead it to the point where it could erase to erase itself. Did I do that right? Mm -hmm. I think I did yeah. that right. And so what you'd end up with is something very similar to what we see, which is not only, you know, emptiness, but it's not empty. We're not walking into Manhattan and seeing the smoking ruin of New York. We're walking into Manhattan. We're seeing a New York that never existed because two, you know, eons from now, they're going to wipe themselves out and they have to have wiped themselves out. Which makes uh, living in a universe with another concurrent intelligent species as unlikely as presumably it is that two uh, self-conscious species will arise on the same planet at the same time concurrently. Yeah. Um. Oh God. Oh man. That I like that doesn't make my head hurt. That just makes it makes me feel numb. To think about that. Well, the 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 best part of it oh, no. is then to ask the question: Where are we in yeah. that? Are we in the middle of that process? Which we'd have to be, unless we were the last one, which doesn't make or, sense. Or maybe this, or the special one, yeah. the special one that we again we're, we're we never quite get smart enough to invent the time travel that would doom us or we were but, smart enough uh, or, or lucky enough to obsess about it in our science fiction and we end up building a uh, a par a time paradox council that is so strict that we managed to make it past the point where we would destroy ourselves maybe I mean, I got to think positive here because otherwise I'm just going to spend the rest of the day just kind of floating from room to room. Well, don't look at congressional committees uh, <laughs> for uh, for inspiration on that. Uh, or basically any committee. I mean, any, any two governments yeah. getting together does not. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's, that's kind of terrifying. Uh, I, I would really hope that that it's the uh, brain zerbling alternative where we're going to get out there and we're going to find a bunch of people. And they're like, Hey, guess what? Uh, the prime directive told us not to come bug. Yeah. And yeah, we bugged a lot of other civilizations because there are a lot of captain Kirk's running around, but you were lucky. You happened to make it all the way up to brain zerbling and welcome the club. Like I, I just hope so bad that that's the case, but I I'm trying to think of what the other alternatives are. I mean, maybe, Maybe the flaw is in assuming that, you know, civilizational life is common at all. Maybe we get an entire galaxy to ourselves and we're going to end up meeting other civilizations when we look into other galaxies. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's that's diving back into some of the other terms. Um, the uh, Because the ones that we can check, you know, a fraction of stars that have planets... Yeah. Um, average number of planets that can support life, those are really high numbers. Um, and so it's it's something about the fraction of those planets that actually develop life. Yeah. That's a big open question. Um, and then, you know, how much of that becomes intelligent life? I 
I'm a little dubious about that just because how how easy it seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it, that's certainly a possibility. I, I kind of like the idea that you had um, about other civilizations reaching a point where if they're complex enough to communicate, they they communicate with each other and they realize that they need to protect, you know, kind of the, the, the fledgling civilizations. Um, there was a, a fun short story that I can't even remember now that talked about that where... Um, humans finally got to the point where um, we were exiting the solar system and the very first thing that happens is we crash through this barrier mm. and we look back and it's a thing that we couldn't see from the inside but we can actually see that now it's been breached you can get to our solar system from outside and the idea is that then they go on and they find um, solar systems like ours that also have these barriers mm. that now they can see mm. and they can't get in them. So somebody protected these at some point, but then they also find other kind of cracked eggs where it's a solar system where a civilization had existed, um, left signs of his, its existence, but has since then gone on to, uh, to, to exit. So yeah, the, uh, um, the the sense that we're not hearing of anybody else's existence because they're being kind to us and it's not time yet. I do. I, I that is, that's a hopeful idea, and I kind of like that one. Yeah, Gala or uh, solar system eggs are really interesting. Um, and, and and then of course there's. I love the idea that, um, you know, once you, or, or that, that the L term is, is limited, the length of time term is limited, not because we destroy ourselves, but because we go on to uh, a higher plane of existence, which, uh, the cult in the culture series, they actually talk about this, how there are uh, a number of civilizations that just disappear into a different world. And, um, they rarely come back. And when they do come back, um, they are so completely changed that they like won't, they not only won't, but can't tell you <laughs> about, uh, about what it's like on the other side. Um, and one of the books, I don't know, are you a culture fan? I, I have read a couple of them because you have recommended them <laughs> to me. I will probably not read anymore. Okay. So, so I, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> I'm currently uh, working on my third read through. Um, and uh, there's, there's one of the books in the last five, cause there's 10 books. I think it's in the last five where um, you get to meet a being who's come back and he is so um, Douglas Adams loopy uh, that like they ask him about the other side and he's like, Oh yeah, I'll tell you everything you want to know. And like, he just answers questions in such a bizarre way. Um, but I mean, that, that's, uh, that's a possibility. Um, who else? Yeah, actually, uh, and Leckie's, uh, books, the ancillary series, uh, feature a character who's from, uh, in that case, just an, an alien species and the alien species has basically genetically engineered this human to speak on their behalf but the human that they've genetically engineered has a brain that works like the aliens and is 
is basically completely incapable of anything. And so just kind of wanders around and it's like, you know, oh, is is that my name? I think that might be my name. Um, or, you know, is wearing bizarre clothes or, you know, um, can't really interact on a basic level. And then when they're asking questions about it, it's like, okay, well, you know, what would the aliens think about this? And it's like, well, um, I can't really even say that because yeah. it, it doesn't make any sense to me either. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it's it's that idea of, of such alienness that um, it's hard to communicate. Uh, Karen in the chat actually um, says, uh, yeah, there, I'm going to paraphrase here, um, but um, an intelligent um, species might end up building a civilization that respects their general desire for solitude. And that would result in a society that we might not recognize as a civilization. And I think that that makes sense both on the small level, so as a term of this, this equation, you know, an intelligent species creating a civilization, but also on the, on the macro level, where if you had um, this kind of meta-civilization of civilizations, and their prime directive is, we've, we've decided that bothering each other is a really bad thing, there might be the quietness protocols that are, are built into that civilization. And so we're just in a part of space, you know, a set of galaxies that are implementing the quietness protocols. Oh, so there's so many facets to this conversation. I feel like we could just go on forever and ever. Uh, thanks for chiming in, Karen. Boy, okay, so we're we're coming up on an hour here. Uh, before we go, I think we should point out that if you go to notion.farm slash listen, uh, you can now listen in live every other week when we record. Um, and we would love to have more people join us. And, you know, maybe we'll ask you guys to help us pick topics every week. I don't know. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. Boy, uh, yeah, th- this whole... This whole topic of of the Fermi paradox and and uh, associated topics just it, it gives me that numb feeling like when you're first starting to get drunk, uh, your lips and your toes and sometimes your ears go a little numb and that's kind of I kind of get that tingly feeling all over because it's so big it's it's too big for a podcast I think um, I think you've got to have multiple books on this topic before you can even begin to um come up with likely answers right yes yeah i I think um it may be that the uh the the practice of answering uh the fermi paradox is uh is what ends up defining a civilization that's going to survive Mm. so oh that oh that was a good little nugget yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) all right I'll, i'll talk to you in two weeks chris all right i'll see you then